What's up, everyone? Thank you once again for hitting that download button, press and play, and join us here for another edition of Kicking Out at Two this week. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, and uh, I'll be flying solo this week as I uh, had to do a little bit of a format change, if you will. Some real-life stuff happened. So originally, like I told you last week, I was going to be covering Money in the Bank trading places, where I was going to trade places with the Money in the Bank winners and kind of, you know, remap the trajectories of the the money in the bank cash holders and the cash-ins and things like that uh but you know some real life stuff happened uh full disclosure got no car accident i'm good my truck is good it's gonna get worked on gonna get fixed but the deer that i hit not so much so uh, uh no no deer were harmed during this recording by the way for any of you animal activists out there just wanted to be open and honest with my audience with my fan base and um uh, just let you guys know that, you know, I had to make some changes uh, with my schedule, if you will. And also, too, another reason why I kind of changed up the format a little bit is because of the fact that I kind of shot myself in the foot. Originally, um, as many of you know that listen to this show, when, uh, you know, I, I plan things out, I try to plan them accordingly to what goes on in today's current wrestling to kind of, you know, have something to look back on, reflect on. So if it's Survivor Series season or, you know, if it's, you know, a uh, a month where an old WCW pay-per-view took place. I try to, you know, match up the dates historically, you know, almost as close to, if not, you know, a few days, week apart, whatever. So, um, you know, originally Money in the Bank was scheduled to take place in the month of June, but uh, they moved some stuff around. And one of the reasons why they moved some stuff around is because recently AEW and WWE both announced that they're going to be going back on the road touring with live fans in the audience. So I thought this would be a good way to uh, to, to kind of um, reflect on what we what the wrestling world has been like the last year and some change, uh, the pandemic era of professional wrestling, if you will, the closed sets. Uh, you know, I'll talk about some of the hits and misses of the pandemic era of pro wrestling. What I liked, what I didn't like, and hopefully the things that I liked and didn't like. Will we see some of that stuff moving forward when? You know, both WWE and AEW resume full touring schedules. Uh, WWE announced a string of dates in the month of July that are going to kick off um, for uh, uh, SmackDown in Houston, uh, Money in the Bank in Fort Worth, and a Monday Night Raw in Dallas. And they've, they've kept announcing more dates. I know AEW announced some Texas dates, some Florida dates. Uh, they just had um, Double or Nothing this past weekend, uh, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, with with a, with a full audience at Daly's place, so uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that on this week's upcoming episode of Catching Up with Kobe Knight here on the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast. Now we're gonna take a deep dive into AEW's Double or Nothing 2021. Uh, we'll talk about the, the the matches that went down, and so you can be on the lookout for that in the streams in the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network by searching Retromania with a W. So we're going to talk about that in depth. So I'm going to hold that off in this week's show here and kicking out at two and save that for catching up with Kobe later on this week. We're going to record that on Friday and I believe we're going to drop that on Friday as well. So we're going to talk about that and a number of other issues in the wrestling world that's going on out there. But here on kicking out at two, I'm going to, like I said, give you my hits and my misses of the pandemic era of professional wrestling. What I liked, what I didn't like. What worked, what didn't work, and why. And how and if those certain things are implemented moving forward in you know professional wrestling, in WWE, in AEW, um, when we have a full-scale uh, touring um, you know, schedule, uh, which seems to be heating up from both, from both companies. Both companies are just 
continue to add more dates. Uh, we're seeing some 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 live events, some non-televised events being announced. We're seeing TV tapings, pay-per-views, things like that. They just announced that SummerSlam is going to take place on a Saturday this year, August the 21st, um, which is the first time in its history. And for those of you that you know are wrestling historians, uh, SummerSlam has traditionally taken place on a Sunday. But if you go back even further, the first few installments of SummerSlam took place on a Monday. SummerSlam's 88, 89, 90, 91, I believe 92, and 93 definitely did. And 94 was the last SummerSlam that took place on a Monday evening. So this is going to be interesting. I will say, uh, when it comes to um, pay-per-views on a Saturday, Sunday used to be destination because everyone knew that, you know, you were home on Sunday nights for pay-per-views. Saturday nights were a little bit tricky. Saturday nights were always reserved for UFC fights, boxing fights, things like that. SummerSlam being on a Saturday night this year, uh, I think it's going to be a little interesting. I, I'll be honest with you, when WrestleMania took place this year, two nights inside the stadium, uh, roughly 20,000 each night, 20, 25,000 each night, um, the Saturday night version was, was, the, was the better version of the two. Um, and I'll get into that. I'll get in depth in, in WrestleMania because that's one of the hits. Um, one of the things I did like about the pandemic era of professional wrestling. I'll get into that in a little bit. But um, having SummerSlam on a Saturday night this year is going to be a lot of fun, I feel like. I feel like it's it's going to be an opportunity to maybe establish a Saturday evening pay-per-view audience for WWE. They, they've kind of tested those waters with the NXT takeovers, the hardcore diehard fans that, that, that are really invested in that brand. I think... Saturday evenings for certain events like a SummerSlam, maybe it'll work in the future. Who knows? But um, they're, they're expected to announce the location. By the time of this recording drops, um, they're expected to announce the location at the Belmont Stakes horse race this weekend. So if you're listening to it by the time the date has been announced, um, or the, the, the host location has been announced, I should say, uh, who knows where it's going to be. Uh, by looking at the touring schedule from what I saw, it looks like um, it's going to take place on the West Coast somewhere. Vegas has been the, the, the top candidate in the rumor mill. Um, the, the, the new stadium out there for the football team, the Las Vegas Raiders, uh, has been the, the, the top candidate. But uh, there's been a lot of skeptics out there that have wondered why WWE would put a pay-per-view on a Saturday in the same city that a Manny Pacquiao boxing fight is set to take place. Uh, because, you know, boxing fights, especially in Vegas, they draw big. Um so I'm kind of curious where, where WWE's train of thought is, if that's the case, if Vegas is the case. But I'm, it's safe to say I think you know SummerSlam this year, if it's going to be in a big stadium, uh, I'm guessing it's going to be on the West Coast based on the touring schedule because Phoenix is going to host SmackDown Friday night, the night before. So I would imagine that the, the guys that are going to be on that show are probably going to be a part of SummerSlam as well. It's the final push before SummerSlam, so... I'm guessing that Phoenix could be a host city. Um, maybe the, um, the 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 Arizona Cardinals Stadium, where the NFL uh, uh, Cardinals play, host to WrestleMania 26 back in 2010. Um, even uh, you know the SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, California. Um, maybe you know they're gonna kind of go with a dry run. They were supposed to get WrestleMania this year, and of course with the pandemic and COVID and COVID really shutting down the state of California, crippling the state of California. Um, 
they pushed WrestleMania in, 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 in Los Angeles in Hollywood to 2023. So maybe this is a makeup for uh, the city of Los Angeles and almost like a dry run to see how a big event would take place inside that stadium. Also beat the NFL to the Super Bowl. WWE likes to do that as well. So it'll be interesting to see where WrestleMania, or sorry, SummerSlam lands. Um, but I'm excited that it's going to be on a Saturday. It's going to be in a stadium. I was kind of hoping it was going to be local to me here in the Northeast. I live in Connecticut, so I thought um, maybe Gillette Stadium where you know the New England Patriots play is like a makeup to the state of Massachusetts because last year's SummerSlam was supposed to take place in Boston at TD Garden um, or maybe even MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, uh, home of the New York Giants and the New York Jets. I thought maybe you know SummerSlam would, would, would be the host there. Northeast wrestling fans are really dedicated, hardcore, diehard fans. They would definitely show up for that in the summertime. But the press release said a destination summer location. So I'm guessing somewhere out in the West Coast is probably going to be where SummerSlam takes place. But like I said, by the time this recording drops and as the week goes on, the announcement will have already been made on the the Belmont Stakes horse race on NBC June 5th. So who knows? But I'm excited for that. Um, Now, with that being said... um, Before I get into my hits and misses, uh, if you would like to discuss your thoughts on the pandemic era of professional wrestling, some of the hits, some of the misses, hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two. Hit the like button if you haven't already. Tell a friend to hit the like button. Nostalgic Pro Wrestling at its finest on Kicking Out of Two's Facebook page, as well as our Twitter handle. Our handle's at Kicking Out Two, K I C K N O U T, and the number two. Um, Find all kinds of cool, fun stuff over there. Links to archive shows, pictures, videos. Uh, haven't really gotten into any heated debates lately. Um, some of you guys got to step it up, man. I want the page to be active. Um, if I'm doing something wrong, tell me. Let me know. Give me some feedback. I can take constructive criticism. It's 2021. I'm not a snowflake. Uh, you know, whatever. I can handle it. So um, I'd like to see more activity on the page, sharing your wrestling memories, your nostalgic wrestling memories of yesteryear on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and then, of course, you can also find this show as a part of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network by searching Retromania with a W. You can find us on Podbean, Spreaker, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming podcast platforms provided by searching Retromania with a W. we got great shows on that network. Catching up with Kobe and myself. We also have the Monday Night Marks with Hollywood Edwards. We have uh, Cool Truth with AC. Edwards and White House, they cover AEW, New Japan, Impact. They even cover some WWE stuff if it's worth their time. Um, Marking out the day's weekend, Warriors, where we cover WCW Saturday Night and WWF Superstars. Origins of Attitude, Gaijin Wrestling Radio, other great bonus content we have available over there. Um, Several hundreds of hours of evergreen pro wrestling podcast content you can find over there by searching Retromania with a W. Um, all right, cheap plugs are out of the way. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's talk about what I liked and what I didn't like. The hits and misses of the pandemic era of professional wrestling. Um, I'm going to start off with um, a little brief intro that's going to lead into a hit and a miss that combine as one. Um Obviously, COVID changed the world, changed the way we live, changed the way um, this world operates. Any walk of life, any business, any, you know, just about anything was changed because of COVID. COVID became the new 9-11. For those of you that lived through 9-11, I did personally. Um, 9-11 changed the way that we travel, changed the way that we interact 
with different cultures, changed the way our world, you know, was up and running and operated. COVID has done the same thing. And COVID, I think, brought it to a larger scale because it became a worldwide issue. Um, and regardless of what side of the fence you're on, and I'm not here to play politics, I don't do that sort of thing. So whether you believe COVID's a thing or not, uh, whether you believe in the vaccine or not, you know, it, it, to me, COVID changed it all, regardless of what your stance is on it, whether it's make-believe or not, you know, it changed it all. And I'm not here to get into that discussion. I don't do that. This is a nostalgic pro wrestling podcast. This isn't fucking Joe Rogan, okay? Um, so with that being said, COVID made a big impact on the world and on everyone in, in, in every walk of life. And wrestling was no different. Wrestling has always been able to um, adapt with what's going on in pop culture, what's going on in society. Um, and wrestling's been in its own bubble. And we live in a wrestling bubble as wrestling fans. Whether you like it or not, we do. Okay, Hardcore, diehard wrestling fans can't separate themselves from, from real life and the wrestling bubble. Okay, And sometimes that real life gets put into the wrestling bubble. And sometimes the wrestling bubble gets inserted into real life. Whether you like it or not, it's, it's, it's 100% fact. Okay, However, I will say that... Um, this time around, when the entire world shut down, when you know there were mandates of, of lockdowns and quarantining, wrestling took a big hit because obviously this wasn't something that wrestling expected to take place. And wrestling had to figure out something real quick. And otherwise, there was a good chance that, that you know certain companies wouldn't survive. Now... With that being said, WWE and their time in the Performance Center is a miss for me, okay? And here's why. And it's no fault of their own, okay? They were dealt a bad hand, all right? They're a, you know, right in the worst time of the year. Their big season, WrestleMania season, okay? For as much as I thought that the WrestleMania, the two nights at the Performance Center wasn't bad, uh, the overall run in the Performance Center just wasn't good. You were starting to see more flaws in the talent and in the production that you wouldn't see with a live audience, okay? And it was, to me, it just wasn't very enjoyable to watch. I can't sit here and say, now, I'm a, I'm a diehard, hardcore wrestling fan. I will watch anything I can with the amount of time that I have available, you know, aside from, you know, not alienating my wife, of course. Um, and it was very, very hard to watch um, Monday Night Raw and SmackDown and even NXT to a certain extent when it came to uh, the, the, the performance center and, you know, the, the closed sets, full sale, things like that. Um, I will give the WWE credit during this time. They, you know, tried to, you know, use the talent that they had available to them and try different things. But um, to me, I just felt like it was it was a huge miss and it was no fault of their own. They were just trying to put out weekly fresh content for the wrestling fans during this quarantine era. Um, I think what hurt about being at the PC was the close set. Of course, there's no audience. Um, you could hear everything 
even to the point you could hear the commentators getting excited and yelling through the echo of the, the, the building itself. Um, and then as time went on at the PC, I know they tried different things. They used, you know, crowd noise in the background during that edge. Randy Orton, greatest uh, wrestling match ever, which people are going to debate about. You know, it, it would, to me, it was just a tagline just to get people to watch, okay? Because they were grasping at straws. So please, let's not, you know, debate that they really thought that that was the greatest wrestling match ever, okay? Because um, I think people get too wound up in, in, in the hoopla of, of the hype and, you know, taglines and things like that, you know? Um, people complain, oh, Rock and Cena was once in a lifetime, but they did it the next year. Well, what the fuck? Like, are they not allowed to have a rematch? Were they not allowed to run it back again because the first one was successful? I mean, what the fuck? Vince McMahon didn't say, oh, well, goddamn, pal, you know, uh, we, we promoted it once in a lifetime, but uh, we made so much money, you know, we can't do it again because we told the people this was once in a lifetime. You know what I mean? Like, come on, give me a break. Like, it was just stupid. But anyhow, I know I just went a little bit of a rant there. But, um, you know, I know that they tried to implement different things to make you feel like that there was an audience at home. They had people that, you know, were trainer, trainees at the Performance Center acting as fans. Um, they went through some struggles with even inviting, you know, friends of friends and family members of talent that were, you know, on the roster, under contract, coming in. Some people had COVID. They had to switch things around. They were just dealt a bad hand all the way around. People were very, very um, anti-WWE at one point because of their rumored COVID protocols. And I don't know what's true and what's not. So I'm not going to sit here and speculate. Um, but, you know, they took a hit. They took a beating with COVID. Um, and so, therefore, it just everything about the Performance Center era of WWE just didn't work for me as a fan. I can't tell you how many times I didn't watch Raw and SmackDown. There would be times when if I would read a review of the show. Now, I have all that stuff on my DVR, okay? But if I read a review of the show and I heard people rave about, you know, a certain match, then I'd go out of my way to watch it, you know? So, for instance, Daniel Bryan and AJ Styles had a phenomenal Intercontinental title match at one point uh, last year. And last summer, and I everyone was raving about it. So I was like, I, I'll go out of my way to watch this match. You know, I was on a SmackDown. Um, but for the most part, um, I did a lot of fast forward and skimming through uh, because it was just um, because it just wasn't really bearable to watch. It really wasn't. Um, now, on the other spectrum, the the hit the the, the you know what worked for me was the way AEW embraced the pandemic and incorporated it into their television programming, which is something that WWE didn't do. It's almost like they tried to make you forget that there was such thing as COVID and that wrestling was up, operational, and, and, and normal um, on your television screen, but just no audience. And, you know, the blatant, obvious reason why they're in the Performance Center was there, but they, 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 they tried to pretend like nothing happened, whereas AEW, on the other hand... They, they got in front of it, they embraced it, and they they incorporated their roster that they weren't using and talents that were extras as made them a part of the audience. For a number of weeks, they were at um, uh, the, the QT Marshall's um, Nightmare Factory gym, the training center where um, he trained wrestlers. Um, they, were, they, they had television for better part of, I want to say, a couple of months. And they used all their talent. Um, 
that were there as extras in the audience and things like that. And it was, you know, there were some guys that obviously couldn't come in and couldn't be a part of the program because of COVID restrictions. Certain states had, you know, stronger restrictions than others. And there was also two periods of time where states were on lockdown, where you couldn't move, there was no movement anywhere. So, for instance, WrestleMania, they filmed it two nights. Um, They filmed matches that was going to be incorporated into two nights of programming. And they had to do that in a relatively short period of time to then make it air, you know, when it was supposed to drop uh, early April because the COVID lockdown was taking place in Florida a few days before WrestleMania started. So it was one of those things where, you know, like I said, it was a bad hand that was dealt to them, but, um, you know, they, they did the best that they could on WWE's front, but they didn't embrace COVID like AEW did. And so... That was kind of cool for a while, seeing the the, the roster members in the audience and, and, you know, almost like a little underground fight club of sorts that they were trying to incorporate, um, which then WWE would eventually try to do with that raw underground shit that they introduced with Shane McMahon and it just didn't work. Uh, There were some cool parts to it, but for the most part overall, it was just like a sad attempt, I feel like. Um, But AEW embracing it made for a much more digestible program. I'm not saying by far and away they were the better, you know, pro wrestling product during, you know, the early days of the pandemic, but you know, it was it, it was it was much better to watch and get that natural reaction from an audience even though it was a worked audience, so to speak, with their roster than watching WWE during the main roster uh during during Monday Night Raw and SmackDown with nobody there um, and it was just an empty building with with no reaction and it just you know even even to the point where when the wrestlers come out on camera and they have to you know the, the way WWE produces their television they have to be in certain spots certain camera angles they have to go up certain you know entrances like the ring steps are a certain place a certain way and they get in the ring and they go on the four posts and do their pose or whatever you know they would they would do their thing like there was an audience there and it would just baffle my mind. I'd be like, there's no crowd there. Why is Rey Mysterio, you know, waving to a crowd that's not there? You know, why is, you know, it would, to me, it just, I, I didn't, I, it, I didn't like it. Plain and simple. Didn't like it. Don't want to keep beating that dead horse. But it was just a bad hand that was dealt to them. They, they did the best they could. There was nothing they could do about it. AEW embraced the, 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 the pandemic and COVID and acknowledged it and got out in front of it to the point where... If a, if a talent did have COVID and he was advertised to appear on the show, they would say, hey, listen, somebody didn't pass the COVID protocols. He's not going to be able to make it. He's going to quarantine, et cetera, et cetera. But we're going to give you this match instead. Whereas if someone in WWE didn't pass COVID protocols, tested positive for COVID, they wouldn't even acknowledge it. They would totally skip right over it. And then some fans would be like, wait a minute. I wanted to see so-and-so face so-and-so. Why isn't this happening? No explanation, nothing whatsoever. Then you would have to find out about it later on the dirt sheets. And it was just it was just a hot mess early on in the days of COVID. So when it comes to the misses, like I said, the, the, the PC era of WWE was a huge miss in my opinion. Um, I will say, though, they kind of bounced back a little bit by taking the Performance Center and rebranding it the Capital Wrestling Center and making it the home of NXT and having people there. Um, and the way that they set it up, it kind of has, it, it really lends itself to, um, to uh, you know, it, it lends itself to being open to adapting to, you know, 
other elements of WWE programming. NXT is a good fit there right now. Um, and it's become more digestible to watch because they rebranded the, the, the Performance Center. They changed the name to Capital Wrestling Center. They've allowed some people in there. Um, you know, obviously there's COVID protocols that they have to go by as well. But um, it's become a little bit more of a digestible uh, setting um, inside the Performance Center. It's taken them a bit. But it's definitely been something that um, has been a work in progress for WWE. AEW, on the other hand, I feel like even though the in-ring product and some of the stories have kind of been all over the place, consistently keeping an audience there and even getting to the point where they were selling tickets, you know, little pods, COVID groups, if you will, like bundle packages of like four and six tickets and you could buy little pods of tickets to, to have a group of people show up. Um has made their show a little bit more digestible. But if, if anything, AEW, in my opinion, has probably got the edge over WWE in terms of how they handled the pandemic early on and then moving forward with the closed set um, and, and you know, not having as, as much of a live audience um, as they would normally under normal circumstances. Now, while we're on the subject of the, the, the performance center and that era, um, there was a positive that came out of that. And to me, that would be the, the run that Randy Orton had in the summer last year um, as he was, you know, taking out legend after legend and then eventually on his way to the WWE Championship. He had a short run with that in the fall. But um, I really thought that Randy Orton's run was the bright spot of the, the performance center era of WWE. That was a hit for me. Not only because I'm a big Randy Orton fan, but it was also a reminder to me as to how great of a talent he was. And I think that that was lost and forgotten. Um, not only to me as a fan, but I think to many other people that are that are Randy Orton fans as well. Randy Orton has been, um, you know, he, he's had a, an illustrious career in the 18, 19 years that he's been in the business, especially on, on WWE programming. And, um, you know, he was really the, the, the probably one of the very few vets on the roster in WWE at the time that was making these shows week in and week out. And he really helped make um, the programming bearable and watchable, uh, you know, with his stuff with Edge and the, the, the greatest wrestling match ever that they had at, at the Backlash pay-per-view last year to the stuff he did eventually with Big Show and then taking out Christian and Ric Flair and Shawn Michaels that eventually got him to the main event of SummerSlam against Drew McIntyre for the WWE Championship. I really, it was, it was a reminder as to how great he was. This was very reminiscent of his 2009 run where he was on a tear and he had gone through the McMahon family and he was the champion and he had legacy in his corner with Cody Rhodes and Ted DiBiase Jr. I was, I, I was pleasantly surprised to see um, how well Randy Orton was portrayed on WWE programming to the point where his run in WWE last summer, you know, it led him to the championship, but he was involved in a series of matches with Drew McIntyre. And people will give Drew McIntyre flack because he got dealt a bad hand too, being in the, the pandemic era of WWE and, you know, winning the title at WrestleMania in front of nobody against Brock Lesnar, which should have been a huge moment for him. I mean, he went from winning the Royal Rumble, eliminating Brock Lesnar in a baseball stadium in, in, in Houston to, um, to eventually, you know, 
with with, with forty thousand people there going crazy for him to eventually main eventing WrestleMania night two against Brock and having um, nothing, you know, nobody there. And even though it was a big moment to him and to other people, to a lot of fans, it was a moment that he was robbed of. And so when Randy Orton came into play and they put those two together, they had a series of great matches. And, you know, this is another one of those hits that are just combined. Because I also have Drew McIntyre on my list. And the progression that his character had portrayed during the 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 pandemic era of wrestling. Um, you know, he was having some bangers and some matches with Seth Rollins and Dolph Ziggler and Randy Orton and Bobby Lashley. And I couldn't hear what you said. Jesus Christ. I don't want you fucking Siri to interrupt. Maybe I got to take my watch off. That was my Apple watch. I apologize. Apparently Siri uh, wants to be a part of this conversation as well. Well, Siri can download the fucking app if she wants to. Um, you know, down, you know down, download SoundCloud. You can find me every week here on Kicking Out of Two by searching Retro Mania with a W. Cheap plug. Sorry. Um, but anyhow... Um, you know, Drew McIntyre was having some bangers and some matches, like I said, with all those guys listed. Lashley, Ziggler, freaking Rollins. Um, you know, then eventually, um, you know, Orton, a series of matches with him. Some really great matches and really coming into his own. And I'm just curious as to how that would come across if there were audience, if there was fans in attendance, you know what I mean? Would they get sick of him like they got sick of Roman Reigns in 2015? Or would they'd be more receptive to him. Um, That's the big question. But I feel like his character progression was handled really well. And it was, it was unfortunate that that took place during a time period where um, there were no fans. But I think what really helped him was Randy Orton. And so Randy Orton's run during this time. And then eventually Drew McIntyre's character progressions. That's, those are two things I really liked about this pandemic era of, prof- of professional wrestling. Um, Orton was really putting out some good stuff, even without an audience there. And Drew, I think, was really progressing very very well, despite the fact that there was no audience to react to him. And therefore, um, you know, when those two met, they, they did some pretty cool stuff. Um, Hell in the Cell, ambulance match, straight up one-on-one. They had a fucking banger on Raw. They had about four good matches on TV and pay-per-view that... Um, that really stuck with me that I felt like it reminded me that Randy, it, it, it killed two birds with one stone. It reminded me how great Randy Orton is and he's one of the best, almost untouchable in what he, what he does. And then it also was, you know, a way to cement Drew McIntyre as a major player for years to come because people could, people could argue that, he peaked after he beat after he won the Rumble, but then COVID came. So you can blame COVID for that. But then he won the title against Brock in an empty performance center. And people can say that shit doesn't count either. Um, but he just kept continuing to be a steady uh, good thing about WWE programming. The same thing with Randy Orton, too. Those were the two things I really enjoyed most about WWE programming uh, during the pandemic era, especially in the PC. Um, another positive, another thing I liked, another hit, if you will, um, that uh, that I enjoyed early on, and I think it started to die down in the last few months, um, was the early days of the Thunderdome. Um, I was very happy when they, when WWE had um, decided to move out of the Performance Center and 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 adopt that um, the, the the virtual experience of the Thunderdome with the screens and the, the audience noise in the background and things like that. It helped make their programming a little bit more digestible. Um, 
And, you know, originally, um, many people thought that it was a, a copy and a play on what baseball and basketball were doing. Basketball had virtual fans in the audience and screens and stuff when they created that bubble um, at the Disney resorts last year and the NBA, you know, did the, the, the tail end of their regular season and then went right into their preseason all summer. Um, you would see, um, you know, screens and fans and, you know, the, the, the crowd reactions and things like that. And I remember hearing about it at first and baseball started it too. And I thought to myself, this is just so stupid. This is just stating the blatant obvious. I think this is a terrible idea. And after watching, you know, a couple baseball games and a few basketball games, I was like, all right, this isn't so bad. You almost get lost in it. You forget that there's nobody there um, because of all the distractions. You're focused on the game. You're, you know, you hear the noise in the background. So you, you, you almost forget that there's an audience there. And if you think about it, the way they shoot basketball these days, um, or the way they've shot basketball you know, for, for years, you know, you have a one hard camera in the center that pretty much shows a picture of the entire court that goes from one side of the court to the left side of the court in the middle of the stands. Okay. You don't really get a good shot of the audience. You never have, unless you get the cameras that are on court close up a guy, you know, you know, shoots the ball out of bounds or tries to save the ball from going out of bounds. He flies into the crowd. Or if there's a timeout, you see the guys go to the bench, you see the, the, the stands behind them. So in a way, it, it was almost the same as watching regular basketball with an audience there because you didn't really see the audience as much. Um, baseball, on the other hand, a little bit more of a wider shot, the way that they shoot baseball, and the way baseball's produced, that it was kind of obvious that there weren't fans there. But when they would put the cardboard cutouts and, you know, the, the noise and things like that, um, it's, they, they still tried to engage the audience. And that was, I think, what was WWE's goal, was to engage the audience a little more with the Thunderdome setup. And I thought the Thunderdome early on was pretty fun. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Um, SummerSlam last year was the first pay-per-view they did in the Thunderdome. And SummerSlam was very digestible to watch. I was like, I, I was kind of happy with the way it, it came across um, with the with the people in the, in the stands and... Um, you know, or, or like the screens and everybody's watching and you got the noise in the background and it felt it was the closest thing to feeling like there was an audience there and it became more digestible for me to watch as a fan. So I think the early days of the Thunderdome worked. Um, as time went on, I think that joke got old pretty quickly and it wasn't very digestible to watch. And, but I think it, you know, producing wrestling in that setting was a work in progress and, um, something that WWE had never ventured out before. And I think it was their best foot forward and they made the most of it. And, you know, sometimes you say, well, no wrestling, some wrestling is better than no wrestling or this wrestling is better than no wrestling. And um, that was the case. I still didn't watch as much. I'll be honest with you. Um, but there were times like towards the end and you could see it now, if you watch, you know, recent episodes of raw and SmackDown and things like that, where, um, certain things that you expect certain reactions from. I don't know if it's, you know, someone missing a cue in the production to hit the button or whatever, but some things just aren't, they just, it's not working anymore. And I think we're, I think we're growing tired of this. And so it's kind of, it, the timing's kind of perfect now that in, in the middle of July, they're going to start going back to touring on the road, uh, with, with fans. Um, and so, but the early days of the Thunderdome, like I said, really cool stuff. The stuff with the screens and the pyro and 
the way it was presented, um, it was definitely, um, it was very fun early on to watch. Like I said, SummerSlam, even Payback, I think, was very digestible uh, to, to watch because it was, um, you know, it, it was still new. It was fresh. It was something different. But as time went on, you got used to it. You got a little more accustomed to it. And it just became um, very, it wasn't very organic anymore. Um, even to the point where, um, which is, which this is, I'll, I'll give you two misses that kind of, um, that, that kind of really stick with me here uh, during this during the, the Thunderdome era. I'm going to transition from you know the early days of Thunderdome being a hit to the the commentary in the Thunderdome. Or no, I'm sorry, I'll get to that in a minute. The Hall of Fame ceremony inside the Thunderdome. Yeah, um, it was bad, and I get it. They were trying to produce television. For us as fans watching at home. But there was nothing organic about that Hall of Fame. I shouldn't say there was nothing. There were very there was very little that was organic about that Hall of Fame ceremony. They taped it with nobody there. Okay. Yeah, I just feel like if I was a talent that was getting inducted into the Hall of Fame, of course I would be very grateful that I'm receiving this prestigious honor. However, you know, part of receiving that prestigious honor is being able to share that moment in front of a live audience. And, you know, that ceremony was taped. I think it was like two days they taped it. You got people dressed up in tuxedos and evening gowns and suits, nice suits and things like that. And it just felt so overproduced and so sanitized and, you know, micromanaged. And, I mean, God, I was so will- I was so looking forward to the NWO getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. And what do they do? They freaking... They freaking put them out there with nobody and they're reading off a teleprompter. Molly Holly sounded like, you know, a robot when she got inducted. You know, the only speeches that I felt were very organic and felt very real were JBL's, Eric Bischoff's, and Rob Van Dam's. Everyone else's felt so over-rehearsed, so overproduced. It was just, to me, it was like, I, I, I fast-forwarded through a lot of stuff. I'm not going to lie. I did. Um, and I love the Hall of Fame. I love watching the Hall of Fame. I know in recent years it's kind of been watered down and it's become more of a TV show than an actual ceremony. And I've discussed different ways. I think that they can, you know, rebrand and restructure the format for the Hall of Fame. But this time around, it was just, it was unbearable. I was like, okay, I'll watch the NWO because those are my guys, you know, Hogan, Hall, Nash, you know, whatever. I, 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 it was just, it was so overproduced. They're reading off of teleprompters, you know, it was, it just didn't, you know, it, it didn't it didn't sit well with me. You know, it really didn't. Then they put the fake crowd noise in there. Like everyone, and then they're like, oh, we'd like to thank all of you for this prestigious honor. Thank you so much for all your support. Like I know they were talking to the TV audience, but there were times when these guys were looking out into the crowd like there were people there watching. It was just god awful. I can't even, I can't continue to, to tell you how awful it was. And that was a huge miss for me. Um, didn't take away from the WrestleMania weekend experience itself but the hall of fame for me i just i i couldn't i couldn't it just it was bad it was really bad and i hope that moving forward now that we're going to have audiences again that maybe next year they 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 come up with some sort of restructuring retooling of the uh, of the hall of fame concept because it's in dire need of one i feel like um and on that note uh when we're talking about the the, the hall of fame being 
you know, part of WrestleMania weekend, a hit for me, something I really liked, was WrestleMania itself, the weekend. Um, the, the, the two, um, you know, the, the, the whole presentation between the two nights of NXT and the two nights of, um, of, 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 of WrestleMania, Saturday and Sunday, I thought overall it was just a fun night of wrestling. Um, especially WrestleMania, the first night and the second night. Uh, I've said it before on the podcast, and I think I talked about it a little bit with Dennis a couple weeks ago. But, um, you know, when Vince came out the first night of WrestleMania with the entire roster to thank everyone for coming and to, you know, almost kind of like it was like a welcome back party from everything that, you know, our, our culture and our society and our world has been dealing with with COVID and the racial divide in our country and the social issues and the political issues. It was just a fun experience to be all together for WrestleMania. And when he came out and he's like, welcome to WrestleMania. And then, you know, the crowd went crazy in the roster. You could see people crying. Like Rhea Ripley was crying. You know, that you could see people, they're, they're overjoyed with emotion that, you know, we were getting back to some kind of normalcy, even though it was at a limited capacity at that WrestleMania. Um, it was just very feel good. I remember sitting in my in my basement, you know, in my 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 man cave with my you know Dennis and my brothers and my wife, and we we're sitting there watching it, and we were just like, we're like, this just felt good. It, it felt good to be around people. It felt good to watch this, and 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 there's people there watching it live and in person. Um, and I'll be honest with you, night one, the advertised matches didn't really do it for me. I was like, well, you know, I'll look forward more to night two. I thought night one was better than night two. I really did. Um, two and a half hours. It flowed real well. Uh, the matches were good. The audience reactions were 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 were, were phenomenal. Um, it was it was really fun. It was just fun overall. I didn't care about who won and who lost. Well, with the exception of the Randy Orton Bray Wyatt finish from night two, but um, I, I I didn't really care about you know who won or who lost. I just wanted to see people having fun again at events and. That was a huge hit for me. I think WWE hit a home run. WrestleMania, two nights in Tampa, you know, 25,000 people each night. You know, I, I was very skeptical about this WrestleMania because it didn't feel like a WrestleMania to me. You know, it didn't, it, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have big names returning. There was no John Cena. There was no Undertaker. There was no Brock Lesnar. There was no Triple H. There was no big names that were part of this WrestleMania. The biggest name that they had from a nostalgia standpoint was Edge, and he was in the main event of night two, which was a great main event with Roman Reigns and Daniel Bryan. I thought it was awesome. I enjoyed that match thoroughly. It was probably match of the night from night two, but um, I was very skeptical about this WrestleMania, and I think just the fact that we were seeing an early sign of some kind of normalcy made this re- made that WrestleMania, you know, both nights very fun to watch. Um, if I'm going to give you a miss from that WrestleMania, it was definitely the Randy Orton Bray Wyatt finish. I just didn't understand that whole thing, but um, it's come to to light in the rumor mill that Wyatt's been dealing with some some personal issues and mental health issues and things like that, and resulting in what's been going on and how that finish came about. So I'm not going to get into that because I don't think you really want to hear about that. But you can you know find the dirt sheets out there. There's been numerous stories that have come out about you know the, the reason behind that finish and. You know, how it pertains to Bray Wyatt and stuff like that. But yeah, WrestleMania 37 overall, night one and night two was a big hit for me. And like I said, being around people, people there in the audience, it was just, uh, uh, regardless of who you wanted to see win or lose and what you wanted to see creatively take place, it was a fun two nights of wrestling. And I was glad that I was able to sit home 
and watch it and, and be around people watching it too. So that was a lot of fun. Um, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier. The commentary has been awful. And this is a miss for me. It, it, WWE commentary, I should say. Uh, big miss for me. Uh, during the PC Thunderdome era. Um, you, know, you want to talk about over-sanitized and over-produced. Um, I've never been a Michael Cole hater. Okay, There are plenty of people out there, and I'm sure a lot of you listen to this show, that feel like um, Michael Cole... Um, you know, has been one of the worst play-by-play color commentators in the history of professional wrestling. And I think, honestly, when it comes to Michael Cole, I think he's gotten a bad rap because he came after JR, who many consider to be the greatest of all time, myself included, okay? I don't think the work he's putting out now in AEW is, is, is GOAT status, but he's already cemented himself to being the GOAT. And I think this run in AEW is just him having fun and trying to stay relevant, be in the game, and contribute. Um, which is nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So when it comes to the WWE commentary, especially during the PC Thunderdome era, I just feel like it's been overproduced. Michael Cole, with every tagline, I feel like he's not organically calling the action. He's not organically telling the story to us viewers on television. He is reading off of cue cards or he's being fed lines by Vince. And I know there's a history of Vince feeding guys lines and yelling in people's headsets to to redirect the stories a certain way for the television viewer. But Michael Cole just sounds so robotic, you know, um, between, you know, when Sasha Banks come out, it's boss time. And when Roman Reigns comes out, the big dog, or now he's the tribal chief, the head of the table, you know, like just very overproduced. I can't say it enough. Um, And to kind of jump off that point, you know, recently WWE hired and then let go of um, Ardan, Adnan Ardan Verk. I can't even pronounce his name properly. The, the 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 former ESPN baseball analyst to call the action on Monday Night Raw. And the first night, I was like, "Bless this guy's heart. He sounds like he's trying, but he wrestling doesn't fit him. There there was nothing organic about that. This was like another Michael Cole to me. I felt. And then we're like. The ship sank and he pulled a Mike Adam Lee was the second week he came on TV and he opened the show. He's like, welcome to Monday Night Raw, everyone. I am Adnan Ver, Ardan Verk or whatever the fuck my name is. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of, we got a lot of storylines to follow up on. And I was like, oh, you just told everyone how the sausage was made, you know? I mean, wrestling fans, they want to they, they, they want to get lost in it. They want to buy into it. They want to believe it, you know, for two and a half, three hours. Even though they know that it's predetermined, it's choreographed, it's scripted, okay? They want to get lost in it. When you watch a movie or a TV show, you want to get lost in it, you know? You don't want to be told how the sausage is made. That's exactly what he did with that line. And that was like the Mike Adamley moment where I just... I just said to myself, this guy ain't going to make it. Plus, his heart, he's trying, but he's just not a good fit. And he didn't last very long because last week, he mutually parted ways with WWE and he's been let go. So he's going to continue to do stuff for you know Major League Baseball and hockey and things like that. Um, but he is no longer employed with, uh, with WWE. But the commentary has just been freaking brutal. It really has. I mean, 
you know, they, they let go of Tom Phillips, who I thought was a really good fit. He wasn't too Michael Cole for me, but he was enough where he he sounded organic at times, and I felt like he had a good chemistry with Byron Saxton and Corey Graves. They, they, they bumped him after WrestleMania, and then that was it. They let go of Samoa Joe, another miss for me. That was it. It was just... I, I I don't know. The only reason why I think Joe got let go is because they realized that he wasn't going to be able to return to... They couldn't clear him to wrestle. And so they were trying to make some shifts in commentary and, you know, budget cuts, if you will, because of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But um, Phillips, I felt, was definitely a good... The, the, the next guy to replace Michael Cole, okay? Uh, and you could bring Michael Cole in for big matches like a SummerSlam or a WrestleMania and have him still, you know, produce talent in the back, et cetera. But for the most part, I thought Phillips was the guy. When they bumped Phillips out of there, moved him to 205... And now they hired uh, former Bellator UFC commentator Jimmy Smith to be the lead guy on Raw. Um, time will tell how that's going to play out. But, um, you know, I like to give people chances. So we'll see as time goes on how, how his work, um, how well he does in a wrestling setting. Being that he came from a combat sport, fighting, MMA, I think he's got a solid shot at it. As opposed to a guy that came from baseball and hockey. That's just my take. But, um yeah, Phillips being let go and Samoa Joe being let go, big misses for me. Uh, I personally want to see Samoa Joe return to the ring. Maybe we'll get to see that. Um, who knows, by the time this recording drops, maybe he'll have already been a surprise as a part of the AEW um, pay-per-view, double or nothing. Who knows? Um, I know. I just I just let the cat out of the bag just a little bit there. Um, but maybe I didn't. Who knows? Uh, anyhow, so let's continue. Um I'll give you a, I'll give you a hit, okay? Something that I that, and I might be in the minority here, but I really enjoyed the recent blood and guts match from AEW Dynamite between the Pinnacle and the Inner Circle. Um, I thought the setup, you know, was was well done, setting up the Pinnacle, um, the storyline with MJF joining the inner circle only to turn on them and, you know, cause kind of all kinds of chaos and then eventually leading to this match, this War Games type match. I thought that was a lot of fun. There are some down, some, some you know, some, 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 what's the word? I was just going to say, you know, downplays, but that's not the word. Um, down points to the match. And that being the 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 picture and picture commercial breaks and something taking place during it that really helped, you know, as an integral part of the story of the match. Um, I think there were way too many of those. I'm not saying you know I'm not trying to act like Tony Khan's ba- you know uh, accountant, but um, I think uh, you know he probably could have shelled out a few bucks to you know to to the networks to uh, make that match commercial free. Uh, I really do, but maybe it was just too much money. I don't know. But the picture-in-picture stuff during that match didn't really do it well for me. It didn't sit well for me. Um, I, I understand why they put the match on TV, because it would be something hard to set up within the, the landscape and the logistics of Daly's Place to do on a pay-per-view. Um, you would have to either do it first or you'd have to do it last, and it would take too much time. So it was a one-match show for the people that were there to watch live and in person but i liked it i really did i thought all of the guys worked their asses off i thought there were great stories told in the match the stuff with jericho and mjf was a lot of fun and um it was one of those things where 
it felt, you know, WWE put their own war games out and they kind of reinvented a little bit. There's no top. Um, but AEW, I think, was the closer, the closest thing to what I remember war games as as a kid with the blood, and, you know, the, 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 the two teams and the way that they got there. Um, you had an element of old school with Tully Blanchard, who had been in a few of those war games with the Horsemen in the Jim Crockett days. But I really enjoyed it. I, I also liked the spot at the end when MJF threw Jericho off the top and he went through the, the stage. Uh, people will say, oh, well, he went through a crash pad and that's silly and it's stupid and you just kind of, you know, ruined it for us. You know, you told us it was fake and I, I didn't mind it. I really didn't mind it. Um, it. It elevated MJF more, elevated the pinnacle more, and it added to the story and the drama of the, of the match. And really put an exclamation point on the violence factor uh, of that match. You know, we saw these guys all bleed buckets and, you know, really go to war with each other in this match. And that was, you know, the cherry on top of the Sunday there. So, you know, I can, I can understand why a lot of people may not have liked blood and guts, the match itself. But I think a lot of people at the same time are very, very critical, almost too critical of the the match itself. Um, you know, because of the, the interrupted commercial breaks, the picture in picture, and then of course the spot at the end. But I loved it, and I think it's something that could be a staple as a part of AEW's programming to blow off. I wouldn't make it. I wouldn't make it a, a like a pay per view like Hell in the Cell, where every year you're going to get the same match. I would put it in when it's necessary. You know, and I think AEW, I think they're going to be good about that. Um, a match that I used to enjoy. That was one of my favorite matches. And it still is to this day. But they changed the concept up. And a lot of that had to do with COVID, of course. Early on in the pandemic. Was the Money in the Bank ladder match. I hated last year's Money in the Bank ladder match. The the climb up Titan Tower. To get to the top of the tower. To grab the briefcase. To retrieve it and win it. Um, I thought it was a, an overproduced comedy skit. You know, you, you had the men and the women's match blended at the same time. Yeah, there were little hidden Easter eggs in there that was kind of, you know, enjoyable. Like Bruce Pritchard's kid wearing the I used to be over baseball hat as he's cleaning up the mess in the cafeteria. Um, you know, little, you know, little gems like that. Paul Heyman in the, in the lunchroom and getting the food spilled on him. You know, I thought, oh, well, that, may be, that may lead to something with Brock coming back. Um, the AJ Styles thing with Undertaker where he goes in the, the random empty room in the office and the lights turn purple and you hear the gong, etc. But for the most part, I thought it was just overproduced and the, the results of it, I think, were just bad. Uh, I didn't mind that Asuka won, but Asuka wins the briefcase and then the next night on Raw, they reveal that Becky Lynch is pregnant. So Becky Lynch, who's the Raw Women's Champion, Gifts the championship to Asuka, and Asuka won the Money in the Bank, and so therefore Money in the Bank is now, you win a title. So I was just, I thought it was, I get it, Becky Lynch was pregnant, she had to get off TV. You could have found a way to do that. She could have just relinquished the title, made the announcement, and that was it, but instead they had to give the belt to Asuka? Asuka won the Money in the Bank. Where's the excitement of cashing in? Let her cash in the Money in the Bank. I didn't, I, I, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. It was just like, here you go. You know, all the years that people complain about the way that they book wrestling, 
This was one of those things that people didn't complain about. And maybe that's because Becky Lynch made the announcement that she was pregnant. Maybe that was the way to soften the blow a little bit. All right, Becky, you're going to go out on TV. You're going to tell everyone that you're pregnant for real. And you're going to give her the belt. Even though she won the money in the bank and the contract constitutes her cashing it in at any time she wants, her victory in money in the bank will lead to her being the champion. So, therefore, she don't need to cash it in. I was just, I, I, I was being an annoying internet wrestling fan. When, when that took place. I really was. I was just like, you got to be kidding me. That was a huge miss for me. And it almost ruined the Money in the Bank concept for me. Because I love ladder matches. It's my favorite gimmick match. My favorite gimmick match of all time is ladder matches. And it totally ruined. And, and, and it took away a creative element that they could have used further down the line in the early days of the Thunderdome. And as time went on during this pandemic, to, to make... Some of the programming more digestible. Instead, it was just, it was like another shit Sunday that was going, and it was in the Performance Center too. You know, the empty Performance Center. It was like, what the fuck? Like, really? It just, it just bothered me to no end. And then on the other hand, you got Otis, who was starting to make a name for himself in the singles run right before WrestleMania with that storyline, that love triangle with Mandy and Dolph and all of this stuff. And, you know, he had that match with Dolph at WrestleMania and the PC, and it wasn't bad, but it wasn't great either. And, you know, Vince decides, oh, well, he's popular. I'm just going to put the briefcase on him. And I thought, there's no way, there's no way that that big bearded fuck is going to win the championship. I just can't see it. I, I see somebody spoiling it for him and still making him the lovable loser because it just didn't sit with me. I was like, they need to give it to AJ Styles. You know, I, I was like, I wanted AJ Styles or Daniel Bryan to win it, you know. But then they gave it to Otis, and I was like, another one of those head scratchers. And on top of that, the way that they produced that Money in the Bank match, you know, in the tower, it was just one big giant com. There was no commentary, okay. They had, like, dramatic music, you know, like, I don't know. I just, don't please don't ever do that again, WWE, please, because that was a huge miss. You know, I, I'm sure that you're going to go back, you know, now that Money in the Bank is going to be in front of a live audience, you're going to have, you know, ladder matches, the traditional Money in the Bank ladder matches in front of, you know, an audience. Uh, so please, whatever you do, don't don't ever do that again. I don't want to see a Money in the Bank ladder match inside Titan Tower in Stanford ever again. I don't. I, I, I just thought that the way it was produced sucked, and I thought the results following that. You know, Otis lost the, cat, the briefcase to Miz. Miz held on to it for a while, cashed it in, won the belt, had the belt for a week and a half, then lost the belt. Money in the Bank, I, I feel like, lost its, its special, unique um, feeling to the concept, you know? The, 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 the way it used to be presented, how it was important. And, you know, it was just kind of thrown away when Asuka... You know, because they had to get the belt off of Becky. It was like, I, I didn't understand this. I either, you know, there's been there's been stories and narratives and rumors out there um, regarding, um, you know, the way Vince is micromanaging the creative and how he'll tear up scripts like an hour or two before Raw and they got to rewrite the whole fucking show. And, you know, the, 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 the creative team is, you know, walking on you know, eggshells around Vince and they can't seem to do anything right, et cetera, et cetera. You know, either Vince came up with this idea and it was fucking stupid or he wasn't there that day to tear up the script and rewrite it. Because why wasn't this fucking idea talked about in the meeting? It had to have. It, it, 
there had to have been someone in that room that was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What are we doing here? We can come up with a better idea than this. Because if there wasn't, if there wasn't anyone in that room that said, that, that stood up and said, no, we can't do this, then you all in Stanford that fly in that fucking jet every week, that write the television, should all be fucking fired. Simple as that. Simple as that. End of fucking discussion. I know I'm getting pretty fired up right now, but come on. If anything, and I'll go on record saying this right now. My phone number, my DMs are open. Stanford, I'm available. You can give me a call. And if I'm really going to put this out on record, that was probably the worst thing that was ever produced under the WWE Performance Center era of the pandemic in professional wrestling. Simple as that. Simple as that. All right. (laughs) I'm done talking about that. That shit fucking... That shit fucking really pissed me off. Um, Let's go to a more positive aspect of the pandemic era of professional wrestling. Something that I liked. A hit. And that being some of the cinematic matches that pro wrestling produced. Of course... The Boneyard match and the Firefly Funhouse match from WrestleMania last year. I did a double watch along of those matches. You can find it in the archives at Retromania by searching Retromania with a W. Um, Those really were like the blueprint for these cinematic matches. Even though many will argue that Matt Hardy and his broken vision and all these matches that he had put together when he was in Impact Wrestling was what really started it. And yes, you can make an argument for it. And I agree. But... WWE, I think, outdid that with the Boneyard match with Undertaker and AJ Styles and, then, of course, the, the Firefly Funhouse. And I know traditional wrestling fans will say, oh, well, the bell never rang. There was no official match in the Firefly Funhouse. Give me a fucking break. Sometimes you got to break the rules in order to entertain the audience. And that's what they did there. And they entertained the fuck out of me for those 15 minutes when it came to the Firefly Funhouse. Cena and Wyatt. They really did. Um... Other notable cinematic matches that I enjoyed that were hits was the Swamp Fight with uh, Braun Strowman and Bray Wyatt from the horror show at Extreme Rules last year. I thought that was a lot of fun. Different setting. Um, the finish, too, when, you know, he threw, you know, Braun into the water and then, you know, the Fiend came out from under the water. Um, I thought that was a cool way to end. It had, like, a, a horror movie kind of vibe, you know, lending itself to the theme, horror show at Extreme Rules. I thought that was fun. Um, and it also kind of stayed in line with the character progression of the fiend Bray Wyatt, how every individual that he comes in contact with, he changes that individual. He changes that person, if you will. So that was, um, that was definitely, definitely, definitely a highlight, uh, a cinematic highlight. Um, some, some people might not like this, but I actually enjoyed the stadium stampede. At Double or Nothing last year. The first one with the Inner Circle and the Elite. I thought that was a lot of fun. That made for a very enjoyable match. You know, there was, you know, hokey comedy spots. But there was also some serious stuff going on. And it was just a lot of fun to watch. It really was. Um, many people would think it was too comedic. And it, it wasn't taken too seriously. But I think um, during the pandemic, you needed to kind of uh, 
you know, um, like I said, break the rules to entertain the people. And that's what they did. Um, but however, wrestling didn't hit a home run with all the cinematic matches. Uh, I felt like the, um, the Johnny Gargano, Tommaso Ciampa, and the uh, Adam Cole and Velveteen Dream uh, cinematic matches. The Gargano Ciampa was an empty warehouse, and I believe Dream and Cole was outside in a parking lot with an empty ring and cars surrounding it. Um, they were okay, but they just weren't the best. I think they even dragged on a little too long. Uh, but uh, for the most part, hits overall, I felt like the cinematic matches overall, there's been a few you know, clunkers, but overall, I think it's made up for there not being an audience. And to be honest with you, it's something that I think moving forward would be a positive to the production of pro wrestling, AEW and WWE. Uh, Sting was even a part of one with Darby Allin earlier this year against Team Taz. Uh, Ricky Starks and Brian Cage. And I watched that recently. And the way that that was produced, that was a lot of fun too to watch in an empty warehouse. And, you know, the the lighting and the production of it all. I, I thought it, it came off really well. Not every, not every cinematic match was a hit. But for the most part, it made up for what we didn't have in traditional wrestling sense with a live audience. And it's something that I think is going to be a positive moving forward in wrestling uh, within WWE and AEW. Um, I'm going to go to a miss here. And this is a subjective one, of course. Not everyone's going to like it. But um, I feel like that the Impact Wrestling and AEW working relationship is a miss for me. I was excited at first. When it was announced, when, you know, you saw Omega and Impact Wrestling and when you saw, you know, the Good Brothers, Gals and Anderson from Impact on AEW and they're, you know, paired up with Omega. But um, it's not really benefited AEW, if you ask me. Um, And it's hardly benefited Impact Wrestling. And maybe it's just me, but I needed an explanation on television from a storyline sense as to why these two companies are working together. You know, um, what's the reason behind it? You know, it, it, it appeared at first that it was some sort of takeover, you know, Don Callis, who was, and still is to this day, an, an executive for impact wrestling is the manager for the AEW world champion, Kenny Omega. How is he able to, be a part of AEW and pull the wool over everyone's eyes in AEW, Tony Khan included, to help Omega cheat to win the AEW world title and then bring his buddies from Impact, Gallows and Anderson. How is that allowed? You know? And then on the other hand, you know, how is Impact, from a storyline sense, and this is me talking in storyline as if this shit was real, how is Impact Wrestling allowing Don Callis to go on another television show and conduct himself the way he does. And why is Tony Khan paying for advertisements for his show in the middle of Impact Wrestling's programming? What's the end game in all this? Because if it's just to 
say, hey, I get to wrestle my buddies on this TV show, and then they can come on my TV show and, and, and work here. I don't think you needed that whole big elaborate setup. That's just me. Um, I haven't seen really, other than Omega, I haven't really seen too many guys from AEW go work in Impact taping. You know, I, I've, I've tried to keep up with Impact a little bit. Um, but for the most part, it's really been all about building Kenny Omega, if anything. If you think about it, it's been all about getting him to the next level. You know, they surrounded him with Gallows and Anderson, who were part of Impact Wrestling. They've pretty much now almost been more part of AEW than Impact. Don Callis is his manager. Now he's back with the Young Bucks. The Elite is back together. The, the, the American version of the Bullet Club is back together, if you will. But, you know, I haven't seen the Young Bucks go on Impact TV. Why aren't they on Impact Wrestling? You know, I, I don't think it's benefited either party. I know in a recent interview, JR said that Impact has benefited more from AEW, but I don't think Impact really has benefited all that much. You know, Omega's their world champion at the time of this recording. Um, why is why is this working relationship taking place? What's the end game? I feel like it's just I feel like it's just you know two promoters having an agreement saying, all right, you can put your guy on my TV show. I'm gonna put my guy on your TV show and just take it from there. There's no real like structure, concrete sort of deal. That's just me, okay? Because when I think of working relationship and talent swap, I think of seeing some guys from Impact on AEW. I, I think of seeing more than just Omega from AEW on Impact. You know, I'm not saying that there needs to be like some sort of hostile takeover between two companies kind of storyline, but you know, I think there should be a little bit more you know, talent swaps than they're, than what we're currently seeing. I, I That's just me personally, you know. Why isn't, you know, Eddie Edwards and Sammy Callahan and Moose and all these other guys from Impact Wrestling, why aren't they on AEW Dynamite? You know, the only real answer I can give you is that there's 600 guys on the AEW roster between Dynamite, Dark, Dark Elevation. They got another show coming out called Reloaded or some shit. They're going to move to TBS and go to Friday nights, et cetera, et cetera. So, um... I honestly don't really have a real explanation as to why this working relationship is taking place other than to benefit the, the rise of Kenny Omega in the United States on wrestling television. Uh, I can't see any real benefit for either side other than the sole benefit of Kenny Omega. And to some degree, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't find anything wrong with that. But... I would just like a little bit more, for me personally, like a little bit more explanation as to why, you know, these two companies are working together because it's, it's, it's been very underwhelming. This has been a miss for me. It really has. As, as excited as I was early on, this has been a miss for me. And I can't, I don't know, I just, I can't really get into it too much. I, I, I'm not invested in it as much as I should be, I guess you could say. Um, and with that being said, why don't we get into another miss here that involves um, AEW, and that is the Kenny Omega, John Moxley, AEW Revolution Exploding Barbed Wire Deathmatch. Um, you know, when they announced this match a while back, I wasn't really too excited for it because, you know, I saw the first match they had at the Full Gear pay-per-view in uh, 2019 
And it was, you know, no holds barred, lights out, non-sanctioned, etc. And there were probably about like seven or eight instances where the match should have ended and that should have been the finish. And it was just overkill. Overkill, hardcore wrestling. It was just way too much. You know, the broken glass and the bed of barbed wire. That was another situation where they told us how the sausage was made when they had the young bucks and a couple of stagehands come out and, you know, present us with this like barbed wire trampoline apparatus to for one guy to suplex the other guy in like that should have been the end of the show like when you put the guy through that that should have been the end they should have fucking rolled credits and said we'll see you wednesday on dynamite but no they didn't they continued I think the finish was somebody went through the they took the ring mat off and somebody got DDT'd through the freaking you know the floorboard or something of the ring I don't remember to be quite honest with you I don't um, I apologize for that but uh, when this match was announced didn't really have any high expectations for it other than like it's going to be another overkill and after watching it recently uh, it was and the finish at the end where you know. The, the, the ring exploded and the pyro went off. Um, I'm not saying I'm a bloodthirsty wrestling fan, but if you're going to advertise that type of a match, you need to follow through in some form or fashion. I'm not saying that you needed to blow a guy up. Okay? I'm not. Okay? But, you know... The way wrestling has been produced in the last year with the pre-recorded stuff and the cinematic elements and nature of of professional wrestling, I feel like you could have made a better effort to make it appear like the, the ring was going to explode, um, even if the match was maybe pre-recorded. I just didn't... You know, the, the spots were, you know, with the barbed wire and some of the earlier stuff wasn't bad. And, you know, the, the guys worked hard. And they beat the shit out of each other. And like I said, I'm not a bloodthirsty wrestling fan that's like, oh, I need to see that guy blown up. But, like, you really back yourself into a corner. Or should I say book yourself into a corner if you're going to advertise that type of a match and not be able to follow through. Because at the end, most of the internet thought that that was like a fart in church. And to Moxley's credit, he saved face and... At the end of the match, when the cameras were off and for the live crowd only, he had said, you know, well, the wonder why the explosion, something to the effect of, you know, the one thing that's true is that Kenny Omega doesn't know how to make an exploding, you know, he makes a shitty exploding bomb or whatever. So I feel like after that, you could have saved face and continued on. They've kind of, you know, you know, they threw Kingston in the mix. Now they're, you know, they got their involvement with the Young Bucks and, you know, et cetera. Um, and it looks like this is going to continue on, following, uh, following up, uh, you know, from 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 uh, double or nothing, at least from my perspective. Uh, however, um, yeah, that got over like a fart in church. The exploding barbed wire death match itself. I know that they're trying to do something different, present something different, something that WWE wouldn't present. I commend them for that. But like I said, you're going to advertise something like that, man. You better follow through. You better find a way to make it look like something exploded because that felt like that felt like my mother gave us four Rosenbluth boys sparklers on 4th of July at a picnic for us to just stand there and wave these sparklers around. 
Um, and then the sparklers just fizzle out. That's what it felt like watching that. Um, and I made sure I watched that match because um, I wanted to be able to give you an honest perspective on it. And yeah, it was a miss for me. It definitely was a miss. I didn't watch it until recently. I didn't see it live. But um, yeah, it was definitely a miss for me. A big miss. Um, not quite as big as, uh, you know, Asuka and that whole Money in the Bank fiasco with, uh, you know, Becky Lynch and the pregnancy. But it was definitely a big miss. Um, on the AEW front, um, a match that definitely was a hit for me and something that was not the norm for women's wrestling was that that Britt Baker Thunder Rosa non-sanctioned hardcore match where Britt Baker, you know, bled quite a bit. I thought those girls worked hard, and I really enjoyed the match. And people, the the, the hypocritical wrestling fans out there that want to see the women's wrestlers be treated the same as the men, this was an instance where they were. And then when Britt Baker bled and they did some of the dangerous spots they did, the same fans that wanted them to be treated like the men were also like, oh, wait a minute, that's a little too much for the women. Oh, that's that's a little uncomfortable to watch. You know, come on. Like, stand stand by your convictions. And I stand by this one. That this was a great women's match. You know, they they had a rivalry that had built, been built up for a while. And it had progressed on television over time. And it finally came to a head in that match. And both girls worked their asses off. And both girls, I felt like, really helped continue to make women's wrestling feel relevant and important. WWE has been doing that for a number, you know, last five years now. They've had their peaks and valleys. But for the most part... They've consistently made the women a staple of programming. They're not a, a, an attraction anymore. They're not, you know, the popcorn match. You know, they're a part of the programming. And AEW did that with this case. And I've said it from the get-go. From day one, Britt Baker should have been the world heavyweight champion right off the rip. They introduced her as the first female signed to the promotion. They should have built the company around her. Her character's progression has made her the only must-watch portion of the women's division in AEW no disrespect to people who like Japanese women's wrestling okay with the exception of Asuka all right and even Kairi Sane and Io Shirai over in WWE AEW's presentation of Japanese women's wrestling has fallen flat okay it just has it's fallen flat you know this experiment that Omega you know I I hear Omega's the, the the big the big reason behind this experiment with with Rio and Hakira Shida and and, and, and those names, it just it, it didn't work for me. Didn't work for me. There was no connection to them. And I think a language barrier definitely plays a part in it. No disrespect to their athleticism and the talent that they have in the ring. But as a, a character, someone to connect with, I just don't connect. Britt Baker, on the other hand, made me connect. You know, her, it, it, it made me invested in her character. You know, with, with her interactions with Tony Schiavone and Rebel, not Reba, um... It has made she has made the women's portion of AEW very very watchable and enjoyable, and like I said, she should she should have been the champion since day fucking one, and she proved that in the match with Thunder Rosa. Thunder Rosa, on the other hand, has been trying to make women's wrestling more important on the on the NWA uh, television show as well as her time in AEW, and I look forward to seeing more of her. And the two of them locking it up at some point on a, on a main stage for AEW, a pay-per-view, for a championship, what have you. So um, that was a big hit for me. The, the you know Seeing a woman bleed as much as she did, I'm not trying to be bloodthirsty here, but I didn't have a problem with it. 
I didn't have a problem with it whatsoever because th- these girls worked their asses off and it, and it told a great they told a great story and it was a part of their um, their uh, you know the build up to their story and it led to this and I just thought overall it was it was very enjoyable to watch it was definitely a hit and one of the bright spots of the pandemic um, in professional wrestling. Uh, Let's go to our last miss here. Um, this was a big miss for me. Uh, I get why AEW tried this, but for me, this was a big miss, and it was something that, in my opinion, it just did. It, the 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 results from it wasn't bad, but what we got getting there. Just didn't make sense to me, and that was the 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 Shaquille O'Neal AEW working relationship, the Shaq Cody storyline. You know, um, you know, C- Cody. I've always since he's branched out on his own, and even maybe late in his WWE tenure, I'd always been very fond of his work. His time at AEW has consistently been the best promo and the best in ring worker. To this day, still. But his... The interaction with Shaquille O'Neal just didn't make sense. It just didn't make sense. There was no reason why... There was no reason given as to why Shaq is coming to AEW to, 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 to get a piece of Cody. You know? There just wasn't. And then you threw Jade Cargill in the mix and Brandy Rhodes. And there was no real explanation. It was just one big, giant, jumbled mess. And then, you know, uh, Brandy... You know, they announced that she was pregnant. Her and Cody are expecting a child soon. Um, so then they threw this red velvet girl in. And she worked her ass off. And really, if anything, that was the bright spot between her and Jade Cargill of that mixed tag. But why was Shaq there? What issue did he have with Cody that he wanted to step in the ring and wrestle him for? You know, there was nothing given. It was it, it was very, like, very passive-aggressive. Very vague, you know. And I thought if you're going to capitalize on TNT... And have a name like Shaquille O'Neal, NBA Hall of Fame, basketball Hall of Famer, NBA legend, won multiple world championships. He's a part of the the, the, the TNT uh, pregame and post show NBA team. You know he's been a big hit with Charles Barkley on that show for a number of years. You want a name like that? You got to capitalize on that. And yes, it got a little bit of mainstream media and attention. It got a big rating for them. And I guess that was the the goal. But as a wrestling fan, why was Shaq there? Why did Shaq want to wrestle Kobe? What issue did Shaq have with Kobe? What issue did Kobe have with Shaq? It was just like, Shaq's coming and he's going to wrestle you, but we don't know why. Huge miss for me. Not the biggest one, but a huge miss for me. You know? And I don't know if there was some miscommunication between Shaq and AEW Creative and, you know, the the, the, the booker, whoever. I don't know, but it it getting there was pretty rough. To the point where it's like, I almost didn't watch this match. And in fact, I didn't watch it live. I watched it later. And someone told me, they were like, you gotta go check this match out. It actually wasn't bad. And it wasn't. Shaq put in a good effort. But, what you know, it, I just needed a little more context to make me more invested in the match. Just his name alone showing up and being announced to wrestle against Cody wasn't enough for me. I need some context. Like I said earlier... I want to get lost in it. Wrestling fans want to get lost in it. They want to believe. They want to buy into it. You know, just like when you watch a television show or a movie, you want to be invested in it. You want a reason to be invested in it. You want a reason to care. I didn't have a reason to care. And that's the bottom line there. And that was a big miss for me. I just didn't think that it was, um, 
I didn't think it was uh, it came across real well. The end result with the match was fun to watch, but come on, give me some substance, give me some context. Didn't have that, and I think that was a big mistake on AEW's part. And I don't know if Shaq will be back again. Um, to be quite honest with you, I, I really don't. Um, maybe this was just some sort of one-off and he had to get this off his chest and, and wrestle because I know that for a long time, the rumors were for years, it was him and Big Show to WrestleMania and he did that one spot in the Battle Royal a few years back at, in Texas and Dallas with him and Big Show. Other than that, didn't really have a match match um, until now with Cody. So um, we'll see. But yeah, that was a big miss for me. And the final, the final thing on this list here, um, to me, in my opinion, the, the best thing that took place during the pandemic era of professional wrestling was the character progression and the change of Roman Reigns and his association with Paul Heyman. Um, for a number of years, I've been a Roman Reigns guy since I watched him, since he debuted as a part of the Shield. I always felt like he had potential to be the guy. He was like a combination of the next Batista and The Rock, I felt like. And I've said this before on a number of different podcasts, and I'll say it now. Again, if you don't know, now you know. Um, he he got a bad deal. You know, he got a he got a, he got dealt a bad hand. Uh, you know, he was thrown into a position that he wasn't ready for uh, in late 2014, 2015, when they tried to make him the guy. I think the timing was bad. I think the people still didn't want to let go of Daniel Bryan. As the top guy, they looked at Roman Reigns as like another John Cena. They were going to shove down our throats. They didn't let Roman be Roman. You know, they didn't let him be who he is. They didn't let his natural charisma and his natural talent ability come to shine. They tried to make him into some superhero and give him funny, you know, one-liners, the sucker, suffering, sucker and succotash, whatever it is. And that killed it for him. I've said it before. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll say it again. The night that... that Reigns came out on TV and he won Superstar of the Year in 2014 at the Slammies. And he was only on TV for half the year because he was out with an injury. And the people didn't buy that. I knew that, they, that he was in trouble, that his character was in trouble. And for a long time it was. Um, and slowly but surely, they would make steps and strides to try and make him, make the audience care about him. Well, you know, when he announced that, you know, he was walking away from wrestling for a little while because he had cancer and he was going to, you know, battle leukemia. Uh, that was, you know, the, the people cared about him again because, you know, that's something that on a human level people could relate to because, you, you know, there's millions of people out there who have either had the disease or know someone that they love have had the disease. So on a human level, he became, you know, likable, um, lovable again, to wrestling fans. And then that joke got old after a while once, you know, the, the new car smell wore off with the fans and they went back to disliking him again. And then he stepped away uh, because of COVID. Um, and I feel like right before that, you know, he was he was going to challenge Goldberg for the for the championship at WrestleMania and he walked away because of his, of, of his health issues, you know, regarding COVID. I feel like that was when the audience was really going to really get invested in because they hated the fact that Goldberg beat The Fiend. So therefore, Reigns was going to be the guy to dethrone him and they were going to get behind him. And I feel like that there would have been a good dynamic between him and Goldberg there because Goldberg was starting to get a little bit of an edge. He was almost acknowledging more that the fans didn't like him. And I feel like that when they were going to go in that direction, it was going to be some good stuff heading into WrestleMania. But they didn't because of Reigns voluntarily walking away because of COVID. 
and you know they they inserted Braun Strowman and he dethroned Goldberg and not long or I should say about a few months following that Reigns returned at SummerSlam with a little bit more of an attitude and then eventually he was paired up with Paul Heyman and this progression of the tribal chief the head of the table the guy that you know feeds the Samoan dynasty this stuff has been on the mark you know he has helped make Jey Uso a singles player you know now Jimmy's back in the mix and uh, it looks like they're heading towards something with him and Jimmy, maybe a hell in the cell um, to, to kind of play off, um, you know, this family dynamic that's been going on. Like he's just been on fire. His promos, they changed his music up, the way he conducts himself, this whole character change, the association with Paul Heyman. Like this is, to me, this is setting him up for, to him eventually being a top baby face. You know, you got to be as bad as they come in order for the people to love you. I think this will eventually get him to that point. Um, but I think he's still got a ways to go. Uh, between you know the matches he's had with Daniel Bryan and Cesaro. The way that he won at WrestleMania against Edge and Daniel Bryan. How he stacked them and pinned them. And then stood tall over them with the title. Like that cemented that he's going to be the guy in WWE. Like this is like this is, they are 100% on board for real behind him. This isn't another experiment. And I think this is working. I think this has been the best thing that the pandemic has has given us wrestling fans is this character change with Roman Reigns. And I really look forward to seeing where it's going to go. The rumor is that he might face John Cena at SummerSlam. If they can get John Cena to, to agree to, to come back, if his movie schedule allows it, if he's willing to wrestle. That's the big rumor is him and John Cena at SummerSlam. Um, there's been talk about him and Brock. Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing him and Goldberg in a big setting. Uh, so, you know, kind of adding to his list, building up his resume, if you will, to then eventually him, the big, the, the big end all be all for me as a Roman Reigns fan is him and the rock at the end of the day at a WrestleMania. Maybe that's going to be a couple years down the line, but you know, I see Roman being a very dominant force in the main event scene with the championship for years to come. And I think this, that it, this has been a long time coming. He's worked hard. He's earned it. He's deserved it. And this character progression, this change with Paul Heyman and the stuff he's been doing with the Usos uh, has just been top-notch stuff. I'll even go back to the I Quit match he had with Jey Uso at the Hell in the Cell pay-per-view inside Hell in the Cell. I mean, the storytelling, the, the, the way that that match was produced – the things that you know Reigns and Uso were doing, the way that Reigns had, the way that they had portrayed Reigns as this this killer, he will he will decimate his family in order to stay on top. Like to me, this is something that he has needed for a long, long time. And like I said before, I'll say it again, one final time: the best thing the pandemic has ever produced in wrestling was Roman Reigns and this character change. And with that being said. Um, you know, I, I think this is it. I think it's time to wrap it up. Um, you know, I've given you my hits, my misses, what I've liked, what I haven't liked, what's worked, what will work moving forward, um, and all of that when it comes to the pandemic era of professional wrestling. I thank you very much for tuning in, checking us out uh, this week here on Kicking Out of Two. Next week, Flying Solo once again is I'm going to be doing a blind date diary of the very first In Your House pay-per-view event. I'm in the middle of watching it. And giving you a recap. I've never watched that show from start to finish. I've only... Actually, have I seen a few matches? No. I've never seen this show before. Ever. Not a single match. Actually, no. I'm sorry. I lied. I've seen the Bret Hart Hakushi match. But from start to finish, I've never watched this entire show cover to cover. So I'm currently watching it. Going to give you a recap. Giving you my blind date diary recap 
of this show next week here on Kicking Out at 2. And then the following week, I'm going to do a little Hell in the Cell retrospective as we get closer to the Hell in the Cell pay-per-view event. Um, I'm going to discuss um, the good and the bad that is the Hell in the Cell concept and something that, you know, can... Can it, can it be revived? Can it be rebranded? Can they 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 make the Hell in the Cell concept pay-per-view or the Hell in the Cell gimmick match, you know, a, a concept worthy of producing on television or on pay-per-view? Um, I'll, I'll give you the good and the bad that is Hell in the Cell over the years, over the, the, the 24-year history of, of that gimmick match. And then the following week, I'm hoping to do a, 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 a watch-along with Dennis as we're going to watch the 1995 King of the Ring event. That uh, that pay-per-view is is quite the stinker, and it's going to be the very first of what we'd like to call the Stinker Series, where we're going to watch some crappy wrestling, and then we're going to laugh about it and talk about it and, and, and why it was bad. So King of the Ring 1995 is probably one of the worst pay-per-views out there. You're going to watch that with us, hopefully, on, on the Peacock on WWE Network with Dennis and myself. And then we end the month of June with um, a look at... The patriotic element of professional wrestling. Patriotic characters, patriotic storylines as we gear up for 4th of July. Uh, we're going to talk about um, you know storylines and matches and characters. And the effect that patriotism has had on professional wrestling. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, the patriotic headlock at, to, to uh, cap off the month of June. And then the summer is just going to keep rolling and rolling. As month of July, we're going to do a rewatch. Of the Bash at the Beach 1996 main event. I know, I know. The pilot episode covered the very first Bash at the Beach event. I'm not going to watch that whole show. Hopefully me and someone else, whether it be Dennis or whomever, we're going to sit and watch the main event. The Outsiders, Hall and Nash take on Sting, Lex Luger, and Randy Savage. And the birth of the New World Order and Hulk Hogan's heel turn. We're going to watch that match on the network, on Peacock, on the 25-year anniversary of the birth of the NWO. Following that, we're going to do some sort of Money in the Bank retrospective. As a matter of fact, I told Dennis on that we were going to cover the 10-year the anniversary of CM Punk, John Cena, WWE title, Money in the Bank in Chicago. We're going to watch that match on the 10-year anniversary on the J- July the 14th as we gear up towards the Money in the Bank pay-per-view that's going to take place later that week. Then another stinker in the month of July. That's right, another stinker in the month of July. So we're going to be covering the 1991 Great American Bash pay-per-view. We're going to watch that in its entirety on Peacock on the network. Dennis is going to join me. It's a terrible pay-per-view. It's probably one of the worst pay-per-views that I've ever seen. I actually watched it once last year, so I'm going to watch it again with Dennis this time. And then we roll out the month of July with a very special retrospective on uh, WCW. Um, you know, for for years, it's been, we're in the 20th anniversary of the purchase of WCW from WWE, and over the years, WWE has uh, memorialized WCW in the Monday Night Wars and in the the the. Um, the documentaries that they've done, but I thought it'd be kind of cool if we booked a WCW reunion show with, with, you know, talent that are available that had worked in WCW, all the big names from WCW. What would a WCW reunion show be? WCW one night stand. ECW did one. Why not WCW? It's never been done before. So we're going to do that to end the month of July. And then August, we got some SummerSlam stuff going on, but I'll get into that with you at another date. Um, and yeah, that about does it for this summer here on Kicking Out of Two. So with that being said, it's now officially time to put this show down for the three count. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>